0: Well, good morning, Red Hills Church. How are you in this morning? Good, so good to see you. I am really excited about uh, tomorrow. We start our 21 days of prayer and fasting, something that we've been doing for the last four years, and uh, something that I always think is an amazing thing to do at the beginning of the year, to focus on Jesus uh, and and reorient our own lives around Him. And we do that through the practice of prayer. And normally we do 21 days of just prayer, but we're adding fasting to it. Uh, And so I'm fasting a meal every day and I'm fasting sweets, uh, and so uh, I'm going to take that time uh, whenever you fast something, you give something up, um, and you focus on Jesus in that dependency. So it doesn't always have to be food. It could be technology, <laughs> social media, uh, not technology if you're watching church online. All right, don't, don't fast that, but uh, it could be a lot of things that, um, that maybe you spend a lot of your time doing or things that you really like that you can give up for the Lord, uh, and so that starts... Tomorrow, And we have a couple ways that you can connect and be a part of that. The first way is that you can go to our website, download the prayer guide, or you can grab one on your way out. It's got just a great way to engage with scripture and in prayer. You can text the number on the screen. We'll get it up there. If you want to get a text update every morning like I do, I need reminder. You can text pray twenty. 22 to 94000. We will send you uh, in the morning um, uh, a link to uh, uh, our video. We're going to do a devotional every day. And then we also have a A Spotify playlist that you can play um, uh, of worship music as you pray. So we're just asking to watch the video, to join us for prayer, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, You can do it on your own schedule, in your own time. You can do it in the morning. You can do it at night. Uh, Just encourage you to do it. Do something and um, and engage uh, with prayer. And I promise you in 21 days um, that you'll be closer to Jesus and you'll see things uh, happen and move in your life. Well, today I thought in anticipation for 21 days of prayer to talk about prayer. And so the title of my message today is Prayer Works, Prayer Works. And we're going to be in the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, your phone, you can turn to James chapter 5. We're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, But I want to talk about prayer and the fact that prayer works. I love it when things in my life work. Anybody with me? Uh, I love it when things work. I can't stand it when things don't work. I think sometimes we take for granted that our car starts up every morning. But I don't know about you, but, but uh, throughout uh, my life in owning cars, uh, there is the check engine light that is like dreaded in my life. Because I buy cars with 100,000 miles on them, uh, it always seems like I buy a car when someone is getting rid of them. And I have a GMC, which I think they come from the factory with the check engine light on. Like it's just par for the course with a GMC. I mean, it's 14, 15 years old. Um, but, but fortunately, I live in Yamhill County. And there's a reason that I'm fortunate because I used to live in Multnomah County and you'd have to take your car to the DEQ every time you registered it. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And if your check engine light was on, you would be rejected, and then you'd have to drive down the street, and you, if you drive down the street by DEQ, there's all these like little businesses advertising to fix your check engine light. A thousand dollars later, you've got a brand new catalytic converter. When I used to think about my check engine light, I thought my transmission was going out or the engine. I found out that you can drive your car a very long ways with that check engine light. <laughs> But it still bothers me, right? It still bothers me, because I like things to work. You know, prayer uh, is something that we all have an idea and a view of prayer, and we've all had experience with prayer, where sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. And I want to talk about that today and dive a little deeper in this uh, topic of of prayer. And and in the book of James, I love the book of James. A lot of people like the book of James because what James does is he takes deep, rich theology and he dials it down to, it's like cookies on the bottom shelf for everyone to understand. A lot of people will say James is their favorite book, I think purely because they can understand what James is saying. Like you don't read a passage of James and think, I wonder what he meant by that. You might read Romans and think that and ask that question all day, but James is pretty clear. And he's pretty clear about faith. The theme verse in James is James 2.17, he says this, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by works, is dead. All right, what is he saying? James is saying this, that real faith, authentic faith, genuine faith produces a result. Now, don't be misled by what some people think He's not saying that we have a faith of works. He knows Paul's theology, right? That you are saved by grace, through faith, not of yourself, not by works. So it's not a faith of works. It's a faith that is evidenced by works. And he says, if you don't see the results of your faith, if it is not effective in your life, then your faith is dead. And so the theme of James is your faith works, Your faith works. And then when he talks about prayer, I think he's saying your prayer works. Your prayer works. Now, I have to give you a little warning before I jump into this. It's a little warning. In the last nine years that I've been preaching at this church, every time I've preached about prayer, there's been controversy. I've gotten an email, I've gotten, you know, you're going to let the devil into the church, like I've gotten that. I've gotten a lot of controversy around prayer. So I'm almost expecting an email Monday morning, uh, what I said or what I didn't say about prayer. So don't email, just call me up and set up a meeting. Um, but, But here's why. Because a lot of people have different views about prayer and they have different opinions about prayer. And a lot of times, what you pray, how you pray, and what you think about prayer is determined by something larger that I want to talk about today. So I want to talk about prayer, but first of all, I want to talk about what shapes your prayer. And what shapes your prayer is this theological, uh, doctrinal view of God's providence. Now, maybe you've heard it called God's sovereignty same word providence sovereignty it means the same thing when we talk about god's providence we're talking about the way god rules the way god governs how he interacts with humans in the world around him you could say that providence is would be god's politics like how he executes his plan in creation and i'm going to make an audacious statement Today And it's something I believe to be true, that what you believe about God's providence determines what you believe about prayer. And so what you believe about prayer is determined by your view of God's providence. So I'm going to go a little deep for a moment, so I want you to hang with me. I want to talk about three views of the providence of God. Maybe some of you are new to Christianity. These views have been debated for the last 500 years, okay? And so I'm going to talk about those views. There are three. There are two primary views of God's providence. Three I'm going to talk about today. The first one is this. It's called meticulous providence. Meticulous providence. And meticulous providence is the uh, belief that God controls Everything, every detail that happens in the world. That God is in complete control. That nothing happens in our world, in our culture, in our families, in our life without God uh, causing it to happen. All right? And, and so this view would uh, be uh, in the camp of Calvinism or Reformed tradition. In uh, and, and so um, nothing happens... Uh, good, bad, ugly, or evil without God being part of it. All right? Uh, and um, a lot of Christians, a lot of like smart people believe in the meticulous providence. I went to a seminary that believed in meticulous providence. And the way you pray when you believe in meticulous providence is you primarily pray to align yourself with God's will. And so the thinking is if God has a plan that's been predetermined for my life, then I don't choose that plan. I must align myself with God so I can walk out His plan in the details that He has already determined before I was born. And so prayer becomes largely alignment of my will with God's will. So there's something I have noticed And this is more anecdotal, because I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I've noticed about people's prayer life who believe in meticulous providence. Now, you may have come from a church background that believed meticulous providence. And maybe you've never even given language to it, but that's what the pastor taught and what the doctrinal statements taught. But I've noticed something on on just kind of an average level, the average uh, Christian who believes in meticulous providence doesn't know the whole kind of theological distinctive, but their thoughts about prayer. And it's this. If prayer doesn't work, then you blame someone. And if prayer doesn't work, you blame God. Because God is in control. God runs all the details of life. Everything happens, good, bad, ugly, and evil, by God's approval, and some would say by God's cause. Yes, that everything bad and evil would happen by, be caused by God. And if I pray and my prayer doesn't get answered the way I think it's going to get answered, I've got to blame someone and I blame God. Why would God? not heal. Why would God not do this? You know, what is wrong uh, with, with God that he would not do what I've asked him to do? The other extreme, or the other side, is called free will providence. Now, I've got this book called Across the Spectrum, and it's two people Um, writing back and forth, arguing theological distinctives. One's from Calvinism, which is what I just explained. One's from Arminianism, which is what I will explain. You could say one is Reformed, one is like a Wesleyan tradition. And so free will providence is the idea that uh, I have complete choice in free will, how to act, how to live in our culture, uh, in life. And so... um, A meticulous providence would say that you don't choose God, God chooses you. Like you are predestined by God, meaning he chose you. And there's something, double predestination, I won't even talk about that. But free will providence is that you choose God, that you have a choice to make um, to accept his grace and accept his love, uh, and you can reject it or you can accept it, but the choice and the power is in your hands. Someone meticulous providence would say, no, no, you don't have a choice. You might think you have a choice, and it might feel like you have a choice, but God actually did a work in the Holy Spirit in your life, and God chose you. And so free will providence, uh, when you pray, you pray to uh, move God's heart and move God's hand to action. You plead God uh, for action. And And I see at the extreme end of the free will providence spectrum is this, is that when your prayer doesn't work, who do you blame? You blame yourself, right? If I have the ultimate choice and my prayer didn't do what the Bible said my prayer would do, then maybe I just don't have enough faith. Or worse, you ever been in a prayer meeting where one person prays for another person, they don't get healed, and nothing happens, and they say something like, you don't have enough faith. (laughs) All right? We love to blame people, by the way, because we don't have a grid for the gray areas of life, and even in theology. But did you know that there's a third way? There's a third way. Oftentimes, you know that there is a third way when there are two polarizing of opinions or theological distinctives, and it's called active providence. And active providence is this idea that God does both. Here's why because when you read the Apostle Paul's conversion story, he's on the road to Damascus, you see that God intervenes in his life and God chooses Paul. Like, Paul doesn't have a choice. Jesus appears to him. Jesus blinds him, causes him to go blind for three days, so he has to go to Ananias in order to get healing so he can see again. You know, it wasn't like Jesus appeared and said, do you want to accept my love? Like Paul would say, no, I don't. I'm gonna go on my mission of persecuting Christians to eliminate the gospel of Jesus. And so you see that God works in a very meticulous way in Paul's life. But then you see other instances. I'm not going to go into everyone, but even the disciples, for instance. Jesus called the disciples, come follow me. And it says they dropped everything they did and they followed him. They had a choice. So could it be that there are times where God does both? Here's what I believe. That there is a mystery. There is a mystery to how God's providence interacts with human responsibility. And they are interwoven intricately, mysteriously together. That prayer and God's providence work hand in hand. Active providence. Here's a short analogy I can describe active providence. Active providence can be described as God being the captain of a ship. And God leaving port and having a destination. And there is nothing that's going to stop God from taking that ship to its destination. There is nothing that's going to detract him. There is nothing that's going to destroy him. There is nothing. He is going to take that ship to the destination, and nothing can get in the way. But people on board have a choice. They can enjoy the ride, or they can jump, or they can go and cause mutiny, or have mutiny, and they can lower the life rafts, and they can go their own separate way. But one thing they can't do is to change the direction and control of the ship. Are you with me? So what does this have to do with prayer? Well, let's, let's talk about James. James chapter 5, uh, verse 13 through 18, he talks about prayer. This is what he says. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being just as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again, he prayed, and the heavens gave uh, gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is how we can understand James and what he believes about prayer, is that he believes that prayer works. (laughs) He believes that prayer does something, that prayer is active, And that God responds to our prayers. He believes in the power of the prayer. He says this, the power uh, of prayer, uh, or the the, the righteous man, the prayer of a righteous man is is powerful and effective. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament, and specifically I want to talk about James, it's written in the Greek language. And the Greek word for effective is the, the word energeo. And most times in the Bible, this gets translated as work. And so what you could translate this as is the prayer of a righteous man or woman powerfully works. The prayer of a righteous person powerfully works. Prayer works, just like faith works in the mind of James, prayer works in the mind of James. And James loves to dial down the bigness of God and bring practical implications to what we believe about the gospel of Jesus. James would say, if we have a faith that works, and if your faith isn't practically working, then your faith is dead. Prayer can be understood in a similar way. Prayer actually works. We have a prayer that is actually heals. We have a prayer that actually forgives. <coughs> we have a prayer that is powerful in a prayer that is effective. So there are two questions that I want to answer today. And the two questions are this. How do we pray and when do we pray? How do we pray and when do we pray? How do we pray? It's easy for our prayer to become religious, isn't it? Formulaic. Does anybody find themselves repeating their prayers? All right, I do all the time. And sometimes I'm like, man, I'm so boring when I pray. <laughs> and I feel like I'm finding the, the same things. And so sometimes our prayer can be very formulaic. And it become ritualistic. Uh, but prayer at its most basic meaning is communication with God. It is talking to the Lord. It is talking to God. Prayer is relational, not religious. Prayer is designed to create a connection and relationship, not in a religious sense. And so, if you can have a conversation with a friend, then you can have a conversation with God. Have you ever heard someone who has very eloquent prayers? Right? I just, I love hearing people pray that sounds like, you know, it came right from the King James Version, and they just have a beautiful, eloquent, rich prayer. But the most beautiful prayer I've ever heard came from a 12-year-old boy. I was a, uh, a cabin leader at a camp one year, and this 12-year-old kid had, didn't grow up in church. He accepted Jesus Christ, and on his bunk at night, we were, we, were, we were praying, and we were teaching him how to pray, and he said the most beautiful prayer. It was raw. It was simple. It, it was not eloquent, but it was authentic. He prayed like we should all pray, as if God was in the room hearing him, as if God was someone right next to you. Prayer is simple. Prayer is relational, and it can be passionate and pure. It doesn't have to be eloquent, and it can be raw, and it can be simple. And Jesus, I love this about Jesus, is that he teaches us how to pray. Literally, in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, it says this, This is how you should pray. Do you find it interesting that Jesus was teaching his disciples who grew up in the Jewish religion how to pray? I mean, they grew up in in, in environments and in families that knew how to pray. But there was something about the prayer life of Jesus that they wanted to know. And so they asked him, they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? You know, Jesus would go alone and be with the Father and come back. And they said, I want want what you have. Would you teach us how to pray? And this is what Jesus uh, prays. And I want you to read this prayer with me. A lot of you know it. So this is how you should pray. Say this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How many of you have said that prayer before? All right. I was baptized Catholic and my grandma was Catholic. And so I grew up knowing this prayer, saying this prayer, hearing this prayer at the table, at the dinner table, at her house, when I went to her church. We know this prayer. But... Jesus teaches us a model of prayer. And what I want to talk about today is not as much as what Jesus says, like the specific formulaic way, but what he intends by what he says. I think there's something for us in this prayer. Jesus teaches us how to pray, and he emphasizes the way in which we are to pray. And so there's four things I want to give you real quick. The first one is this. He says, our Father. I'm calling it invocation. You you ever heard someone on TV, like when natural disaster strikes and the president gets up and says, we need to offer up our prayers. Or we need to pray. You know what I think? Pray to whom? Who, who, Who are people praying to? Everyone has a version of what or who that they're praying to. And Jesus is very clear. When you pray, you invoke the name of God, Creator God, Yahweh God, God who who is in the scriptures, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus uses the word Father. The word Father is unique to the disciples because you would be hard-pressed to find God referred to as Father in the Old Testament. You just can't find it. And Jesus gives this kind of deep, intimate meaning. But when he says, our Father, he is talking about the God of the universe, the God who has the name Yahweh, the God who created all things. And so when we pray, we pray to the Father. We pray to God. We pray to Jesus. We pray to his Holy Spirit. The second way in which we pray is adoration. So he says, our Father who is in heaven, right? He's telling you what God we're praying to, the one in heaven, the one of the scriptures. He says, hallowed or holy be your name. What is Jesus doing? He's giving adoration and worship to the God who is in the heavens. He is praising his name. And so when we pray, we not only invoke the name of God, we also declare and adore who he is. So Jesus is saying, your name is holy. When we elevate God in our adoration, we put him in his place and we put our us in our place. We put him as God and us as his subjects, as his people. We put him as creator and us as his creation. There is something when you worship God. Like when we, if you, if you are new to our church and you see people lifting hands, that is a demonstrative way to say, God, that you are holy and you are above me. You see people bow down and worship. It is us saying to God that you are above all things. And so we declare, we adore him, we give him glory. The third thing is this, it is an invitation. Said your, your, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's inviting the kingdom of God that reigns throughout heaven into our world, into our hearts, into our homes, into our workplaces. It's an invitation for God to move in our life. A lot of times we, 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 we wouldn't say this, but a lot of times that we act in, in Christianity is we invite God to come follow us. Like, God, you, 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 would you come into my life and just make it a little better? right? Help my finances in my life, help, you know, help my aches and pains in my life, and uh, help the things in, in my life. And it's, it's a come, follow, follow me mentality instead of, no, I'm going to come follow you. And so we invite the kingdom of God into our hearts. And then Jesus says, ask for what you need. Give us this day our daily bread. What is you saying? You ask for the, the basic necessities of your life. You ask for provision. This is the petition part of our prayer. It is asking God for what you need in that moment. And then the next one, the petition, is a forgiveness of our sins. And then it's praying for spiritual protection. How do we pray? Jesus would say, that you invoke the name of God, you pray to God, you give him adoration and you give him praise. You invite his will and his kingdom into your life and then you ask for what you want and what you need. It's not just the words that he's saying, it's the model and the way and what he's emphasizing by what he's saying. And so when we pray in 21 days of prayer, I think this is a model that we can use, our Father, Address the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Give Him praise. Worship Him. Invite Him into your life. And then ask for what you need and then for what you want. The next question I want to answer as we wrap up is when do we pray? Because I think James teaches us when do we pray? Here's what he says We pray, the first one is as four things. We pray when we're in trouble. He says, if anyone has trouble, let them pray. Now, this isn't like I'm in trouble with the law or in trouble with the principal, or in trouble with my boss. He's actually, the word translated here could be translated suffering. It's people facing suffering, hardship, and pain. When you're in distress. And James makes this general enough that he's talking to all people who are facing pain and suffering and hurt in their life. And any kind of pain is a cause for prayer. So let me give you different ways that we find ourselves in trouble today and times that we can pray. We can pray when we're spiritually in trouble. When we're spiritually in trouble, what do you mean? If you're confused about your, your interior life, who reigns and rules your heart, you might feel like you're in spiritual trouble. If you are the ruler of your own life, then you are in spiritual trouble. If you have a gap in who you think that you are and who God is saying that you are, then you are in spiritual trouble. When you are in trouble, then he would say pray. If you are struggling with God, if you have doubts in your life, then you pray. The second one is this. We pray when we're in physical suffering or physical Trouble. We pray when we have aches and pains and disease and discomfort in our life. We pray when we have emotional trouble, heartache, sadness, grieving. You you, you know that uh, King David wrote this in Psalms. He says, why, oh God, am I downcast? Why is my soul downcast? You know what the 2022 language interpretation of this would be today? God, why am I so depressed? Why? Why do I have anxiety? Why? I had someone say they left our church because I talked about psychology too much. I imagine it's because I talked a lot about anxiety during the pandemic, the number one issue that Americans are facing right now. Why do I feel the way I do? Why is my emotional life like this? Why am I sad when I should be happy? He says, pray. Financial. Maybe you're struggling to make ends meet in your life. Pray. Maybe, maybe you make too much money. Can you make too much money? I, I don't know. But Jesus talks a lot about money in the Bible. Maybe, maybe you're secure financially. Sometimes security is a dangerous place to be because we're not underneath knees as much. Pray. And the last one I have, not sure I should step my foot in this one, but political. Political. We feel like our city's a mess, we feel like our country's a mess, and we we just feel like there are people polarized. If we're in political trouble, we pray. You know what I find a lot of people not doing is praying for their leaders and praying for their elected officials. For some reason, we have walked away with that we only pray for people we agree with. If I only prayed for the people I agreed with, the people I pray for would be a very small group. It might only be myself. Because Brian and I don't always agree on everything. But we walk away in life, we pray for the people that we agree with. And that's a... A difficult place to be. Because our our number one response, just just know this: that you are American and you have rights and freedoms, but you are also a Christian. And the question you need to ask yourself is: which one comes first? Which one comes first? We pray. All right, let's move to the next one. Got too quiet there. We pray when we're happy. I love that he says, if you're happy, sing songs of praise, because he, he, he doesn't leave anyone out. He says, some of you might be struggling, but some of you might be happy. I want you to pray. I want you to sing songs of praise. He assumes that there are people in the church that are having extreme pain, but also extreme joy. And by the way, pain and joy in the Bible are not mutually exclusive. They can actually be one and the same. In fact, a the theology of joy is that joy comes through suffering. But he says, if you're happy, pray. Sing songs of praise. You know, when things are bad, it's more natural to get on our knees and pray, isn't it? Like when life is in crisis, we cry out to God. And that's a good place to be. Whether you realize it or not or like it or not, it's a good place to be. But the dangerous thing that happens in the life of people is when things are going good. Have you ever read the book of Judges? All right, some of you. (laughs) The book of Judges is a hard book to read because it's very violent. But in the book of Judges, there's a pattern in the book of Judges that happens 12 times. And this is what I think the author of the book of Judges wants you to see. So the Israelites go through a season of idolatry where they're worshiping other gods. And they've ignored Yahweh, our father. And it's very clear that there's a prophecy that if you go off your idolatry, there's going to be oppression on your life. And so you see idolatry and the next phase, you see oppression. And things get so bad. It's like the bottom of the barrel. And the Israelites are just like us. We haven't changed. We reach out to God when the pain of going further down the spiral is greater than the pain it takes to turn towards him. And so they turn towards him and they cry out for help. And what does God do? God does what God always does. He delivers them and rescues them. And he sends a judge to do that deliverance. That's why there are 12 judges. This happens 12 times. And once the judge comes in and delivers them, it says they lived in peace and prosperity for 40 years. Sometimes it says 80 years. And what happens? It repeats They forget about who got them there. The next generation forgets about who got them there. And so it starts over again. See, the the times that we should pray, honestly, more importantly than when we're in trouble, should be when we're happy and things are going well. It's difficult to stay connected and tethered to God when everything is going great. Sometimes we focus on healing and pain a lot at our church. Some of you might not relate. Maybe you haven't been through struggles or trials before. And James would say, awesome, just pray. Keep praying. The third one is this, is that we pray when we are sick. He's talking about those who are, have physical sickness. Think about who he's talking to. There, there is no urgent care in the first century. Medicine is very primitive, and it's still mixed with religion, right? It's still mixed with, it's kind of spiritual in the the Greek um, uh, context and culture. And so, James calls them, if you're sick, call the elders of the church and pray. A lot of times, for people in the first century, prayer was their only option for healing, all right. In our world, unless you have something terminal, the, the prayer becomes almost our last option. But he says, if anyone's sick, he says, pray, call the elders of the church and anoint them with oil. I want to talk about oil for a minute because I think this is fascinating. He says to use oil over um, people who are sick. And so, some people would say, well, he says oil because oil has medicinal uses. Right? You know, oil is kind of good for the skin. You ever know someone who drinks olive oil? You know, they drink a shot a day or something weird like that. But he says, anoint them for oil. And it's not for medicinal purpose. It's for consecration. And, and in the, the uh, Israelite culture, Jewish culture, there would be four presses of olives. You know, they press an olive and the oil drips out. I have a friend who owns an olive mill here in, in Dayton in I've seen the olive mill at work, and so there's a a press on the olives, and that's called the virgin olive oil, right? It's like the best of the best. It's the first stuff that comes out. It's the best part. What Israelites would use that for would not be for cooking. They'd use that for anointing. So they would take the best of the best and they would use that for anointing. The second, there's four presses. The second press was for cooking. The third press was for uh, lighting uh, candles or, um, or torches. And the fourth one was for soap. <laughs> and so all of them except the first one were for practical reasons. But he says, I want you to use that oil. That's the oil that they use. So they used the best oil. And they would consecrate them. Some of you may be wrestling with God for, in prayer for healing. And you might be asking the question, why does God sometimes heal and why does sometimes God not heal? And you know, there, there have been lots of good answers to that question and things we can go into, but at the end of the day, it's a mystery. It, it, it's a mystery because we can go to what I said in the beginning, we can blame God or we can blame us. And I don't think God wants us to do either. But here's what I do know, that as Americans, we are tenacious in just about everything that we put our hands to and our minds to except prayer. We give up way too easily. Oh, it didn't work? Let's go to the doctor now. Oh, it didn't work? Let's, you know, Google it. (laughs) If it didn't work, we give up. Maybe there is something about the tenacity in prayer that God wants us to learn to continue to pray. Here's what I do know. I do know that I have consistently, over the last 20 years, had people come up to me and tell me about healings that have happened. One of my good friends, his mom was just, this was just like the beginning of the pandemic. His mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer, literally dying, given a few weeks to live. And he was driving over from Central Oregon and visiting her. And it, it was looking, it was not looking good. And all of a sudden, she began to turn around. And it kind of baffles the doctors, right? And when she was given weeks to live, now she's given years to live. I mean, they said there's nothing that you can do. And he credits it 100% to God. And 100% to prayer. God heals. God works. You might be struggling with, well, why hasn't he worked in my life? But don't give up on prayer. Here's the last one. As we pray when we have sinned. We pray when we have sinned. He said, if any of you have sinned, then confess Do you know that there's healing in confession? Even in that act of telling somebody something that's happened in your life, there's healing work that takes place. This is why we believe in small groups at our church, what we call tribes, is that a lot of times there's healing just being in community and relationship, in a safe environment, where you can share something and someone isn't going to blast you for it. And they're not going to get mad at you we're doing the same thing over and over again. Confession leads to healing. There is freedom in confession. Let me close with this verse that uh, I think Paul says, when should we pray? 1 Thessalonians five sixteen. He says this, Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray continually, pray continually. All the time. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks. All the time. And I love how James wraps up this teaching on prayer with Elijah. He talks about the, the miracle that Elijah did. He prayed and the rain stopped. And he caused a drought. And then he prayed and the rain came back. I mean, amazing miracle. Uh, uh, Elijah once laid on a boy and brought him back to life. Uh, Elijah um, uh, prayed for a widow uh, who was running out of oil and flour and all of a sudden there's jars of oil and flour. But it's amazing. And James says Elijah was a man just like us. He didn't have greater gifting. He didn't have some of you Pentecostals anointing that we don't have. What James is saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been anointed. And actually, the Bible has been saying this all along. It says in Exodus that that we are to be a kingdom of priests. That Elijah, what all he did, I mean, we can idolize him. But he says he was a man just like us. He is a human just like us, one who's made mistakes, one who's been tempted, one who's sinned, but one whose dependency was upon God for healing. And the same power that is in Elijah is in us. The same spirit that is in Elijah is in us.